Welcome back to Bizarre Podcast Dogs Must Die. My name is Grant. You can call him Chip. And there is, surprise, yet again, a third person here with us. Please introduce yourself as you would like to be introduced. Hey, what's up? My name's Jordan. I am from the Shonen Flop Podcast, where each uh, episode, me and my friend David, we read a, a series of manga that got canceled and, you know, just see if it was worth canceling or not. It's a lot of fun. Now in, in the dawn of your second year. Absolutely, which is crazy, you know? We just had our uh, our anniversary episode where we re-looked at uh, the first series we covered, Zipman. It was, a, it was a lot of fun. So is your second year just going to be retreading the first year then? I think our second year, we're just going to be a full Chainsaw Man podcast where all we do is talk about Chainsaw Man. <laughs> okay, okay. So so hey. not much of a change then. Okay. No, just leaning in. Really? <laughs> so so we are here to talk about the second quarter, I guess, of, of Stardust Crusaders. Uh, everything from when Avdol dies, basically, to when Avdol undies. <laughs> <laughs> Roughly speaking. I mean, when Araki killed Avdol and then realized, wait, shit, I liked that character. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> So as is tradition, I'm gonna I'm going to start the discussion by uh, proposing another uh, uh, theory for why JoJo's Bizarre Adventure is so popular. I think JoJo's is popular because it is a container for other stories. Yes, mm. uh, I, I think it is a frame in which you can hold various genres, various story structures. I think like uh, the the switch from part one to part two showed that in in a big way. But now in our part three stand user of the week format, uh, you're, you're getting that much more rapid fire and seeing it in, in much starker contrast. Absolutely. Yeah. I fully believe that Araki views each part as like its own separate manga. I, I think that part seven steel ball run like initially didn't even have the jojo's bizarre adventure like name attached to it it was just called steel ball run hmm. and then they realized wait for marketing please put jojo's bizarre adventure on there <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean i've only gone all the way through uh part five mm. yeah part four especially is like really different from everything that came before it mm-hmm I think I brought it up before in an earlier podcast, but there's even like a JoJo spinoff that uh, had some of its different stories adapted into a, a series on Netflix. Mm-hmm, yeah. mm-hmm. And those are straight up just like, okay, what if in the world of JoJo, we did some Junji Ito stories or Twilight Zone episodes? <laughs> like they barely mm-hmm. have anything else, anything to do with stands or any of that stuff. It's just the wider world of JoJo is full of ghosts, it turns out. Yeah. <laughs> But even even within this dozen-ish episodes uh, that, that we've done since our last guest came on, like you have a very foreboding, dread-based kind of, of horror that we haven't seen before in the program with, with judgment, and then swings to a very literally psychological so, sort of uh, a horror story with, with the mannish boy entering our dream. Mannish boy, <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> Punctuated with our some very comic or, or very uh, uh, hot-blooded, just straight-up action stories uh, uh, in between. And then you also have the one very forgettable one that <laughs> you get Wheel of Fortune, which is just like, okay, I'll just memory hole that. You mean the one where Araki watched the 1971 Steven Spielberg classic Duel and then decided to make a yes. m- manga based on that? Yeah, it was all about <laughs> that, yeah. <laughs> it is like 
after recording that episode, I went back and looked at Duel, and it is there are some very specific moments, yeah. even more than the general like mm. structure of it, like uh, being waved along to pass, but it's a trap, and you get nearly you know thrown off the road by oncoming traffic that you couldn't see around the truck. That's that's in there. That's straight from Duel. There's yeah. there's a line. It is only in the dub. But it's in the in the dub, Jotaro at one point turns to Wheel of Fortune and is like, so is it some kind of duel you're looking for? Oh my god. <laughs> thank thank you, uh thank you, English localizers, for completely understanding and talking to me personally and telling me, yes, this is a duel reference. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Uh, I wish it was, instead of Duel, it was Maximum Overdrive, which is also evil cars and vehicles wanting to kill people, uh, except they're powered by aliens shooting car-controlling lasers from space. Mm, That's way mm -hmm, better. mm -hmm. I I mean, really, really, they're powered by cocaine, Stephen King. Yeah. You know, like... Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That movie's crazy. That movie definitely feels like something a Rocky would love. Uh, so, So as we go forward, like, something I was struck... Uh, uh, by last time. Still, Polnareff is the closest we have to a single protagonist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're kind of right. Although Jojo has had more moments uh, uh, recently as the primary hero of a team, you know, the, the first among equals. I'm, I'm thinking about him, like, babysitting the stand user in the lover's fight or or uh, finishing off the high priestess. Like, that, that is where I expected things to go. But as far as all of the emotional beats, uh, uh, all the character focus, Polnareff is still uh, uh, the center along that axis. Yeah. He's the one who is the most, who most has to have things explained to him. <laughs> <laughs> I think kind of helps make him feel that way. I mean, Polnareff and Jotaro are, of the five, the only ones that are really going through a dynamic character change, and Jojo's is so much more subdued, while uh, uh, Polnareff gets his to be the A-plot a few times. Mm-hmm. It's it's a big difference. Absolutely. Yeah, and there's, there's further parts later on where, even more than with Polnareff, there are times where Rocky's just like, okay, there's going to be a Jojo, but they're like a like in part five, the JoJo almost feels more of a supporting character than the main character for most. It's like mm-hmm, the yeah. first mm-hmm. the the first like five episodes, like oh new JoJo, I like them, and then it's just like now nah, he's kind of in the background. Look at this guy with the weird haircut instead. Wait, which guy with the weird haircuts? Part five. Oh man, the bowl cut. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the bowl cut with the fringe. The bowl Jesus. cut. But that's that's far away from now. Forget about that, Grant. We didn't say anything. Okay, okay. Yeah, I'm gonna leave it in the the audio, but I'm editing it from my brain. Good, good. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure there's a stand that can do that. <laughs> in the in the second half, yeah, there is more of Jotaro coming more into the forefront. These at least in the, the like the the climax of the fights. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I was actually curious. And I just looked ahead, just looking at the like the thumbnails of the the second half of Stars Crusaders. And yeah, in the the second half of Stars Crusaders, Polnareff is still definitely like a focus, but he does recede a bit more to the background, and JoJo starts coming a bit more to the forefront. That makes sense because after after his genie adventure, his story <laughs> seems done. Yeah, yeah. like he, he's had both revenge and closure in a very dramatic way. Now now he's free to just be. The goofy one. <laughs> yeah. I, I feel like, or there there could be, like, decent ending points to Polnareff's story, like, three separate times in the first <laughs> half of JoJo. 
He gets revenge, but oh no, Abdul's dead. Okay, he's oh, you know, he's accepted that. Oh, they're back. <laughs> oh man, I feel like Araki and a lot of writers. Uh, you see, you notice this, but you notice it like, or at least I notice it super hard with Araki. He gets way more comfortable writing the characters about halfway through each part, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. just has a has a way better understanding of them than when he started. So like Polnareff, I, I don't remember him being like quite as goofy when he first appears but it's been a while since i've seen like the early parts of stardust crusaders but by this point he's like like almost every other line is like look at how dumb this guy is (laughs) he does not understand how babies function he he, he eats baby food and loves it (laughs) he is a baby but he does not understand why peekaboo is a game (laughs) (laughs) so great he's like he's doing peekaboo and then it's like why, why is the baby even laughing? I don't get it. You're not even, like, telling a joke or anything. Like That might be the number one Polnareff moment for me. Just going, this, <laughs> this isn't even funny. This sucks. This, where's the joke? Yeah, it's so good. I am shocked, shocked to find poop in this diaper. <laughs> Who told babies to do this? <laughs> Foolish baby. Use a toilet. Jesus. Actually, no, There, I guess there is one more uh, uh, story arc less, uh, left unresolved for Polnareff, and that's he needs to be able to take a nice, clean shit without the toilet assaulting him in some way. That is true. I feel like uh, Araki kind of noticed that he was just doing that by accident, and then was just like, you know what? That's just going to be a part of Polnareff's character now. He just really yeah. wants a clean bathroom. Fine. Okay, we got to talk about poop. There's a lot of poop. We have to talk about all the poop. There's, There's so a much lot. poop. <laughs> There's a lot of poop. Not just in these episodes, in JoJo. Just like there's so much poop in JoJo. There wasn't in the first two parts. The poop is new. Yeah, this I is the introduction s- I, of all the poop. I want to say that every part of JoJo has a couple things that just keep happening for some reason. For and I don't know why because they're never like big plot beats. It's just but like in part three, there is just a lot of poop, and none of the other parts have poop in them. I'm pretty sure it's just part <laughs> three. Part three is like the gross, the gross like bodily function one where there's just lots. Mm-hmm. In uh, uh, Judgment, they just straight up make a dude gargle their piss. Like, yes! <laughs> that, is not the fr- that is not the only time in JoJo in which uh, people drink piss, by the way. You're going to yes. run into yes. that a few times as the series moves on. Um, I mean, it happens on Sesame Street. Everybody's gargling <laughs> piss these days. Like there are moments in later se- in later uh, series, not to spoil stuff, where like the camera just straight up focuses on like a pile of shit, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it's just like, "Hey, check out this shit." <laughs> Remember this. What I think about the poop. What I think the poop does is it, it it ties into something called the theory of embodied existence. If, if you're familiar. <laughs> Interesting. Basically, the the way that uh, uh, perception is a function of the body, reality is rooted in the body. Like we experience our world, everything is mediated by the body. Like when I say here, I mean where my body is. And that is always true. There's nothing else here can mean everything else is based in its relation to my body in my experience, right? Yeah. The, The first two parts are also very, very grounded in putting action in the body. Like when when, uh, Joseph 
his The Rings of Death, he doesn't cry out, oh, the rings, it's oh, my heart and throat. You know, the, the, yeah. all these little details in like the viscera and the gore. But then when you move toward fights that are happening outside the body, when, when uh, we introduce stands which are in themselves a non-embodied existence, I don't think Iraqi wants to go there. I don't think Iraqi wants to get transhumanist. So he, he has to root it even harder. Mm. So that's why there's always poop. There's all, <laughs> they're always eating. All of these things that tie into, uh, uh, it, it's not about the ghosts. It's about the body. Mm. Huh. Thankfully, Joseph keeps changing his clothes and interacting with his clothes. The others don't. That that's another uh, uh, technique that that that's used to turn you know animated characters, drawn characters into something you recognize as a working body that they don't do. But like bathing scenes are are part of this. Mm. The the poop is unusual, so it stands out. <laughs> yeah. But like all of these techniques are are I think are part of grounding action deeper in the body. Mm. I agree with that because I think um I think Araki at his core really loves horror imagery. I mean that's why like, you know, Phantom Blood, you know, you have all the the vampires and stuff, the very literal uh, mm-hmm. horror tropes. a transformation of the body yeah. whoa so so it's like when things in jojo happen it isn't just like uh oh he uh he healed or oh he did this thing it has to be some weird body horror cronenbergian nightmare mm-hmm. in which something happens which i think is like kind of the charm of jojo in that it's it's kind of fucking gross <laughs> yeah yes yes it's gross and it's not just in a um like compared to others, other anime and other media that you know is gross. It's a lot more creative. And what the fuck is even happening to these people? Uh, it's, <laughs> it's it's never just like ah, you know, this guy got disemboweled or something. It's always this guy got disemboweled by a living ship controlled by an ape or something <laughs> like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's always so uh, wildly specific. Yeah, it's it's something that without context he tells somebody that, and they're like, shut the fuck up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just for like contrast sake, though, I'm imagining and I would love to see a stand user that just is their stand now that, that has abandoned their body behind and is mm. now living this this life without need to eat or sleep or sweat a poop free existence <laughs> as they navigate the world as their punch ghost or a stand that is only poop. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, no. Part nine, baby. Here we go. Oh, what do you name a stand that's just poop? What what musician well, or okay, song? Okay, what's the shittiest band? Uh, you name it Gene Simmons. Yeah, hey! yeah. there you go. I feel like a Rocky right. probably loves Kiss though. Mm, <laughs> 100%. Probably. Oh man, speaking of oh speaking of bands, uh, towards the end of uh, High Priestess, we do see like an image of um, you know Smokey Robinson. It, it's a charity concert. What bands do you think are playing at the charity concert? Oh, didn't we actually talk about this? Well, well, we we talked about uh, uh, how many JoJo referenced bands were at Live Aid. Mm, yeah, mm, that's right. That just makes me think it would be in really poor taste for the band Cars to still be named Cars <laughs> in this world. <laughs> but then again, how would they know? You know, it, it didn't hit the papers. Jo- Joseph using all that speed wagon money and resources to just force them to change their name. <laughs> yeah it's one of those uh little world war ii secrets that nobody talks about you know just brushing under the rug yeah I-, I would think it would just bizarrely have a bunch of uh 
old English prog rock bands and nobody understands why. <laughs> Uh, and, and some, like, straight-up bluegrass jug band that no one's ever heard of. They, they wandered down from the mountains. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or, like, some random 90s hip-hop band just topping it all <laughs> off just out of nowhere. Like, uh... Yeah, yeah, the Sugar Hill Gang was, was going to perform for, for Susie. Great, cool. <laughs> exactly. Uh, what do you listen to in a world where... Uh... Conceivably, all these bands are not bands; they're just stands, right? So yeah, whenever whenever a stand user or stand gains the name of an actual musician from the real world, uh, that musician is wiped from existence. <laughs> there can't be two of them. Yeah, a world without Wham, man, I wouldn't want to live. Oh God, <laughs> exactly. My my favorite JoJo reference. It was in part one. I am pretty sure it's not in the anime, but there's a moment where. I think Zippelli just encounters three, we like four weird vampire zombies, and it's like, uh, and he's just he talks to the vampire zombies, and he's like, "What are your names?" And they're just like, uh, "I'm Plant. This is Paige, Bonham, and Jones." I guess all four members of Led Zeppelin just there. It'd be better if it was Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, though. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, that's almost too conventional for a Rocky, but yeah. <laughs> I mean, spe speaking of names, like one thing I've noticed going through is how few of these stand users were originally named in the manga, but they are all named now. And and like uh, Midler didn't even get a face until years later, much less a name. Speaking of names, I was very confused watching the High Priestess when they uh, they mentioned ah the this stand user her name is Rose, and then we just saw. Like, uh, Jotaro and Joseph on the phone with a guy named Rosas. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Not, uh, uh, the most elegant rename. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. I, for, for clarity purposes, at least. I definitely feel like after writing part three, Araki was like, damn it, I really messed up with the tarot card thing. I just wanted to name him after bands. It's just way better. I'm not going to do that anymore. Yeah. But, but the, the thing with all of these unnamed characters becoming named is I think that's the sign of a growing and, and developing fandom, right? Because now all these stand users from, from way back when, we, we got to give them the wiki treatment. They need names. They are inherently important just by way of being stand users. Never mind that most of them are, are one-off gags that are there to look gross and get punched real hard <laughs> over a few panels. Yeah. They, they have to be named so that we can talk about them, and we have to talk about them because they're important. Yeah, that, that, that's the, the engine of modern fandom picking up after years of when they, they, they were just guys. They were just, it, they, they could have just been guys. <laughs> I mean, the interesting thing about JoJo is that even though the fan base really exploded when the anime came out, there was already a big JoJo fan base beforehand. Oh, I'm, I'm like sure, a, I'm sure. A yeah. massive one. I mean, uh, so when the anime came out, it basically just took all these pre-existing fan ideas and memes and just like supercharged the whole thing. So it's funny. I have actually, I didn't realize this for a very long time, but I had been aware of JoJo's since I was about nine years old or something like that because uh, back in like 99 or something, there is a really big like internet meme that, went around for a while and like flash animations and stuff yeah that was just the like finishing movie could pull off uh of a character from later in part three 
that just had really funny, you know, internet thought the Japanese voice acting was really funny. There was a really funny sound effect tied to it. And so that would just get slammed into fucking whatever Flash animation was coming out. And I was just like, what is this from? And somebody said, oh, it's from the, <laughs> the JoJo's Bizarre Adventure fighting game. So I thought there was just a fighting game not connected to any property just called JoJo's Bizarre <laughs> Adventure. You know, fucking 15 years later or something. I was just like, oh, it's the thing I'm watching. <laughs> I'm I'm pretty sure I had the exact same experience. It's it's got to be pretty easy to find. It is. I I actually I no joke just saw somebody put out a video about it and it's called like the first JoJo meme. Oh wow. Something I wanted to bring up is this second half of the, of the the first season of Stardust Crusaders. Mhm. Has a lot less Dio in it. Yeah, he just disappears. After after Enya like gets killed, like you see no more of Dio until the very end where when For a the... while before Enya gets killed, you see no Dio. Actually, yeah, you're right. It basically right when Centerfold gets killed, I think is the last time you see him. Like the episode before that. You you could sort of split this season into rough thirds by like the villain is Dio in the shadows, the villain is Enya. The villain is the road itself. Yeah. Are are you guys familiar at all with the uh, the original '90s JoJo OVA? I am a little bit. I haven't I'm watched the not. whole thing, but the first one I would really only recommend the first one. But what they did was when they made it, they were like, "So, are we really gonna adapt all of Stardust Crusaders or just the parts that people care about?" So they the first JoJo OVA literally just starts in Egypt. Like the first OVA starts in the episode after the one that we were going to talk about today, like immediately after High Priestess, it picks up then. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and then like five or six years later, they were like, okay, let's put out an OVA for the other parts too. Yeah. <laughs> but I highly recommend the English dub for the original uh, JoJo OVA because the guy playing Dio is the campiest motherfucker I've ever heard. Oh. And I <laughs> love him. Yep. Yeah, so some of the voice acting, English dub voice acting, that is pretty either really campy or just really fucking like unintentionally funny. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, like I, th- I think he's kind of doing a legitimately good job. Like it's exact, it fits Dio so much, but everybody else is just hilarious. I'm also a big fan of uh, Joseph being blonde in that for some reason. Yeah, despite despite being like seventy years old or whatever. Yeah. Joseph's dying his hair. <laughs> so, so one of the great things about Iraqi is that there, for a lot of series, there just is no official color scheme for these yep. characters. Mm-hmm. So it changes with every single adapt adaptation. Now that the anime is is here, and also like a lot of the, um, I don't know how many parts ha- have come out in this version so far, but I know at least through part four or five, they're like fully official colorized versions of the manga out now only in japan but you know you can get scans of that and stuff yeah Uh, and i think those have like official colors for everybody but i think for some of those like the anime may have had the official colors first Mm -hmm. they they do and i have a lot of opinions about the colors because they were not done by araki they were done by like shueisha Mm -hmm. and i think like like when Araki does colors, they're very expressive. Like he'll make um, the sky orange and stuff to fit the 
the tone of the scene that's happening. But in the uh, in the recolor, it's just like, no, the sky's blue. Why would it be any other color? It's yep. just blue, you know? Uh, th- this is common with uh, recolors of so, so many comics. Yes. Uh, uh, like Flex Mentallo just murdered in uh, by, by its uh, recolor. Yeah. Uh, the Killing Joke, very... Uh, uh, Famously, just stripped of so much personality. Unless you ask the original artist who's like, yeah, I like the new colors for the killing show. <laughs> yeah, I'm, sh- I'm sure. Like, well, because a lot of those colors, it was like a technological uh, limitation. But I think the way that they got around it made them more interesting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The worst one is the Inkle. I was going to say the Inkle. God, I, I'm so, I was so angry when I saw those recolors because the original is so psychedelic. And so, uh, I'm going to talk about the Inkle forever. So let's... <laughs> Let's not get into it. Yeah, if we uh, if we ever run out of Iraqi stuff, we we could do. Yeah, yeah, actually, you could talk about Jodorowsky. Yeah, so much. fuck yeah. yeah. <laughs> you could talk. Yo- is is Jodorowsky uh, Europe's Iraqi? Is Jodorowsky? Whoa! <laughs> Holy shit! <laughs> Jodorowsky's bizarre adventure. That's just him waking up in the morning. Just reading it and being like, why does everybody get their dick cut off? <laughs> All dicks must die. Also, a lot of poop. A lot of Absolutely, poop. yeah. He turns Jesus' shit into gold in Holy Mountain. And tarot! <laughs> Jodorowsky's Dune, the... Not not the actual film scripts, but the... the um documentary about it named Jodorowsky's Dune is an incredible watch because you just go through this cycle over and over again of him just ruining someone's day, showing up at their doorstep, doing the most bizarre shit that is sometimes actively harmful to them. And then they become just enamored with him for life. Uh, It happens over and over in that documentary. It's amazing. According to him, I would like to add. (laughs) Well, yes, that's true. (laughs) It's important to remember that when you listen to Chodorowsky talk. (laughs) Speaking of stuff that happens in here, how about the fact that, like, Avdol just pretends he's dead and everybody just hides it from Polnareff. Fucking bullshit. <laughs> like, yeah. I totally sided with Polnareff there. Like, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. like, that was cruel. I mean, especially because uh, you see an old man and Joseph is like, oh, that's, uh, that's Abdul's dad and I don't want to tell him that his son is dead. And then you realize <laughs> yeah. that entire thing was just to trick Polnareff. It was just a mean, awful prank. <laughs> Who's, whose idea was this? Not not just to hide this from, from Polnareff, but to do the whole old man makeup thing with Avdol. <laughs> Who was just like, ooh, Avdol, you should pretend to be your own dad. Dye your hair. It, that does, Put some wrinkles on. It does sound like a Joseph move. Yeah. He is that kind of guy. Did Dio go to Egypt because as a proper Victorian gentleman, he is obsessed with Egyptology? I 100% think so. <laughs> I mean, that's why they have, like, all the weird stuff in, like, part one, you know? That's why they have all the artifacts and shit. They're 100% weird colonial Victorian Englishmen who are... Like, if he was born in a different decade, he'd be hiding out in Japan. (laughs) (laughs) That would be his idea of of the mystic faraway land. Yeah. Yeah. Or India. They would have been... They would have gotten to him so much faster if he were born in a different uh, different decade. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the ultimate reason he's not in Japan is because Iraqi lives in Japan and Iraqi doesn't view Japan as weird. <laughs> it's the thing. 
like Araki taking a trip to Japan just didn't fill him with as much uh, inspiration as taking a trip to Egypt, I guess. So if, you know, Dio wakes up and he goes to Egypt and all that stuff, do you think he just doesn't know about all the other mask bullshit that happened with the pillar men? Because <laughs> it really feels like if he had heard about that and go like, ooh, there's a mask that can just make you God. That sounds cool to me. Who would have told him? Who would have so. said? That is very I true. Guess, I guess so. That is true. Dio just has no fucking idea part two even He just happened. has no idea. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My fa- one of my favorite things about JoJo is that as you move on, there are fewer and fewer things connecting each part to each other. Mm-hmm. Like There's like a through line through basically every part, but at a certain point, they become more and more uh, like solo yeah. things where you don't, you don't need to know anything about any of the other JoJos to really appreciate it. Par- part five in particular is oh, yeah. really just... With, the, with like one or two random out of fucking nowhere moments... Yes. There's like you basically don't have to know anything before part before that part to yeah. catch up. Yeah, I'm still just hung up on the idea of of Dio waking up a hundred years later and thinking, okay, I've had a lot of time to think. I don't want to rush myself uh, uh, like last time. I got to get a lot stronger, a lot more powerful, and I know what that takes as a proper Victorian gentleman. I need to eat some mummies. Where do they <laughs> keep the mummies so I can eat them? <laughs> That's medicine to me. Something I always wonder about. So Dio just sitting in that coffin for a hundred years, not really sure when he's going to be able to get out, just hoping he gets dredged up or something. Was he asleep the whole time or was he just awake the whole time? Just thinking. And he's just got the mental fortitude to not go insane. Just thinking alone to himself for a hundred years. Ah, like a Dr. Stone type situation. Yeah. I like the idea that he's conscious and still just fine when he comes out because that is a thing that makes him scarier than cars. Yeah. Right? I mean, how much crazier can you get, though? <laughs> it's not like he was mentally okay when he went into the box. I feel like he, he would be, yeah, he'd be okay alone because he's with his favorite person in the world. <laughs> That's true. His favorite person who be- has become him. Throughout the years. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Clearly, throughout the scenes we've seen of Dion this season so far, like, he doesn't need Jonathan to talk back yeah. at all. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, Jonathan's his second favorite person in the world. Dio is Dio's first favorite person <laughs> yeah. in the yes, world. Yes, absolutely. Well, you'll learn who Dio's second favorite person is in a few parts. <laughs> but, um, yeah, there's a... Uh, uh, you could tell Dio just... He recognizes that Jonathan was an amazing hunk of man meat, you know? Just like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah. he is so excited to have that body. He strokes it? Yeah. <laughs> he loves it. Yeah, and do you know what? Have you seen those muscles? I would too. <laughs> yeah, I totally get it, Dio. The second episode, the rugby, the rugby match, <laughs> the rugby shows that they have essentially the same body. But he never looked at the one he was born with in the mirror like that. Like... Mm, mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Jonathan was just like a pound beefier, <laughs> and that's why he won. Well, won heavy quotes. <laughs> Stop, uh, stopped Dio for the time being. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I fucking love Avdol's English voice actor. He's also he also plays the dad, like uh, Kilo's dad and Hunter Hunter, and oh shit, he just has. This, like, surfer dude accent. Oh, my God. Have you seen that? 
I've always thought that Avdol's English voice act, at least when he's playing Avdol, it sounds like he's pinching his nose just a little bit, or he's got like a little bit of a cold. <laughs> I definitely hear that, uh, especially when he says "Magician's Red." I feel like yes. they gave the English voice actors like direction to try and sound as close to the Japanese voice actors as possible when they say their stand names. Mm. Because like, because when he says Magician's Red, like it doesn't sound like how he would say it in his normal voice. He's like, Magician's Red! Yeah. Shouting out stand names reminds me, there was a few years ago in Japan, a official JoJo's escape room themed on part three where Araki actually drew a completely new, like, villain, like, stand user who is the antagonist of the escape room. <laughs> oh, shit! <laughs> but everybody in the escape room has their own stand, and it actually plays in, in the game. He had a bracelet or something, so he would stand in certain parts, and, you know, he would wave it or, like, say the stand's name, and it would activate something in the room. <laughs> and, and so everyone had, like, their own, own role in solving certain puzzles with their stand and stuff. And it's gone now, but I so desperately wanted to do that because that sounds rad that's a really cool idea <laughs> for an escape room yeah and you know what you can straight up just have i think it, this was the case too the new villain for the escape room his stand was literally the room you were in <laughs> nice nice <laughs> that's amazing yeah why wouldn't it be that like uh, an escape room stand would 100 percent be in jojo the stand user's name is deja maker and his stand is house of holy <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Wonderful. In, in fact, here, for both of you to look at, here's the guy. They even got, he even has official stats. <laughs> oh, that kicks ass. I love that. DJ Maker. What a durable stand. Mm-hmm. He's got a little mouse friend. <laughs> he, the mouse friend has a hat, by the way. Yeah, he does. A little bellhop hat. And you can tell that it was uh, styled after part three because his shoulders look like tires. Mm -hmm. God, yeah, I love the explanation for his stand. It takes over and controls buildings. When anyone stays in a building that is taken over for an hour, they vanish from this world. <laughs> oh, no. The building itself exists and can be seen by anyone, but physical attacks on walls, windows, floors, etc. have no effect whatsoever. Okay, so stop trying it. Gosh, we have <laughs> yeah. rules here. Look for the sticker with the X. That's not a clue. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, that reminds me, there's a... um. A comic that Araki drew for uh, for Gucci, where I think mm -hmm. there is a Gucci bag stand. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know what it does. I'm fascinated to find out. You know, uh, I love how much weird shit Araki has drawn for just completely random things. Like there's that um, like re there's a research magazine, like a science magazine. He did the cover for, and he just drew. It was like some virus that was on, like the cover story for the thing or whatever, and he just drew the virus as a stand <laughs> for, for them. Uh, th there's also the uh, cover he wrote uh, uh, for a Japanese trans translation of one of uh, Lacan's books. What? Yeah, yeah. It's really? Yep. <laughs> yes, yes. The cover's pretty cool. That's amazing. <laughs> Rocky's just such an interesting artist just to like track his evolution. I found a video recently of him drawing and part of the reason why his art looks like that. And this was told to us by somebody who works, uh, who does some research for our show. He actually will just have a uh, reference material of my, of like Michelangelo's statues yep. and will just straight up base his art on that, which makes so much sense. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
suddenly the reason why all the poses are that way is because it just looks like Araki is like trying to contort his uh, references into the poses that he wants, and it winds up looking very strange. God, I love that fucking cover. It's a very good cover. <laughs> At some point, I feel like I want to do a like a, a special side episode for this where we talk about a side JoJo spinoff manga he made for the Louvre, and I really want to go over that one. <laughs> yeah! I heard about that. That yeah. one's fun. That one's cool. <laughs> it's cool that Araki legitimately has a love for art history. I find that so interesting because I am an art history nerd, so I love that shit. I just realized that on the cover, Lacan just straight up has the tie of uh, one of the villains from a later part of JoJo. Yeah, he does. <laughs> it's the same tie. That's great. The little references he throws in are always so great. Did you see the uh, drawing of Jotaro that he sent Clint Eastwood? Yes. Yeah, so there's just a photo of Clint Eastwood holding up a framed photo of Jotaro. And doing the same pose, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's great. wonder if he knew what even the fuck that was or if he was just like, all right. It's a photo op. Yeah, I totally think he was just like, well, that's like a cool guy. Yeah, I'm a cool guy. (laughs) (laughs) This is pretty recent, too. This is not. No, this is the new art style. This ain't how Jotaro looked. New Jojo, ancient Clint. (laughs) Yeah. Part eight's interesting because like now Araki is like taking months to himself. So the art is like way better now. That reminds me uh, when we're going through this, I'm just watching Jojo uh on Crunchyroll because it I have the Blu-rays and I'm too lazy to take them out. Mm. Uh, <laughs> uh, they're they're in a big they're in a big fucking pile in my closet right now and I don't want to go through all that shit. Physical uh, media in twenty twenty one. Physical media. We were watching on Netflix for a while until they took it off. It's back up there again and they added part four to that too, so I might yeah. go over there because the Netflix versions are uncensored and we've been see- seeing the censored ones for a bit now. The uh, Netflix version, I believe, is the the touched up version of part three. I don't know how frequent it is, but at least it seems for popular anime that get Blu-ray releases, they get touched up and they fix it a lot more of the like animation errors and stuff that's off model for certain shots. Yeah. So it's interesting going through part three on Crunchyroll again, because those are just the versions that aired in Japan. And so I'm noticing a lot of things that uh, look a lot worse than I remember them, <laughs> remember them looking. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. I didn't know that. I'm, I'm interested to watch part four again now. Cause yeah, I just noticed that too. That like, oh shit, part four is on Netflix now? That rules. Uh, there's a website somewhere that somebody just like episode by episode tries to document as many of the changes between the original release and the touched up Blu-ray versions. Mm-hmm. Of mm-hmm. course. There are certain episodes of part four that like got pretty rough <laughs> at certain parts. There were characters with heads that were way bigger than they should have been. Oh, oh, there's like one or two little moments in part four that as soon as you said touched up, I was like, man, I hope they touched up that part. Yeah. No, but one of my favorite things about Netflix, the Netflix versions is that when you watch the dub and turn on subtitles, it has the Japanese subtitles, which are like slightly different. And I love that because I feel like it gives you kind of uh, the best of both worlds almost like, okay, I'm hearing the anime as people talk to me like. There is like the uh, audio component, but now I see what like the original translation was, and it's kind of it's kind of interesting because they do change a bit. Look, if you do a Rocky, you have to have the weird out of like uh, out of nowhere, oddly specific analogies, you know. <laughs> God, there's another one Polnareff said in one of the past episodes. I wish I could remember. I didn't write it down. 
that was just a really bizarre, really specific one. Was it, Ugh. hey, take it easy, stop screaming and shaking the bed like that girl from The Exorcist? <laughs> I don't think so. I don't remember that one. Oh, yeah, they're all over it. It's one of those things that just I love so much about Araki's style of writing. There, there's all I always wish for another a version of every part of JoJo that like gets a second draft because there's always something that I'm just like oh that could have done b- done better or oh he was foreshadowing a thing that never happened mm-hmm. yeah but at the same time I really appreciate the way the story of every JoJo part flows right now because you are so like clearly transparently seeing this guy's thoughts like in real time almost (laughs) just flying by the seat of his fucking pants with every like chapter of the manga or episode of the anime that is a quality i really like oh absolutely one of the things about jojo that i feel uh separates it from a lot of its peers is that while you're reading jojo the things that happen are so bizarre and specific Mm-hmm. Araki just loves teaching you about things that he's interested in. Yeah. After you read JoJo, it's like, well, I feel like I understand a bit about Araki. Oh, yeah. He loves poop. Yes. <laughs> he, he hates dogs. He hates dogs. Yeah, let's let, actually, let's talk about that. Uh, lots more dog deaths. <laughs> yeah. 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 Part three really comes on strong with the dog death. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's... Uh... I mean, in judgment, the dog dies twice. <laughs> it's dog. It's dead before they get there, and then it is re-deaded. Yeah. By the end. Oh man. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, he really does kill those dogs a lot. I, I have this theory that Araki associates dogs with uh, with like the JoJo's. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So when he when he kills a dog, it's supposed to be like, oh shit, things are about to go down for the JoJo's. <laughs> but it it just happens so much. Yeah, like eventually in later parts, it's it's not just dogs, and it kind of spreads out to just animals in general. <laughs> you know, randomly exploding or being cleaved in half, or you know, fucking whatever wacky stand of the week is, is coming up that time around. Um, but man, yeah. part three is all about the dog death. Oh god! I... <laughs> Every time I watch JoJo. There's a moment before I watch it where I'm like, I mean, I must be like exaggerating the dog death, right? Like, that's kind of a joke, right? No, there's so much fucking dog death in this series. <laughs> I mean, yeah. let's see, like in, in just the episodes we watched, I mean, you know, there's the dog that died as they were going to Enya, Enya's house. Mm-hmm. And then in uh, Death 13, it starts off with like, oh, hey, there's just a dog here. Oh, now it got fucking brutally murdered. There you go. Death 13, I think, is the worst dog death. It's... Because of the the object crawling out, squeezing yes. out of the wound in the face. Oof. That one's pretty bad. It's, it's really bad. It's really bad. Like, some, like you see uh, Pocky's get, head get ripped off in the rubber sole fight. Mm, and you that's think, bad. Damn, that's real bad. <laughs> and then this tops it. There's a couple dog deaths later on that I think top that for me, but it's... This one's, it's definitely brutal. It is very gruesome. And it's a baby that does it. (laughs) That evil baby. Babies have no sense of right and wrong. You're supposed to start teaching them that at 11 months. Yeah. Maybe that's why the baby's so evil. It just, it's a genius, but it just doesn't understand right from wrong. (laughs) I also love that the only justification for why the baby is able to do the things it does is not that like, because you think like, oh, well, maybe it's like a, just a very tiny man or something just in the way it's <laughs> yeah. acting no it's just a it's just it's a really smart baby that's it 
My question is, okay, so this is one of the stand users not recruited by Enya. This is somebody that like Dio went to directly, I guess. <laughs> How, the, the baby cannot communicate. It can't speak. It can, you can hear its thoughts, but it can't speak to you. How did Dio know and also talk to and communicate to the baby? I think Dio used uh, an ability of its of his hermit purple-like stand. <laughs> ah, passion. <laughs> right. In order to mediate communication between himself and the baby. Mm, okay. The baby was like, did something to be like, hey, take your stand out and fall asleep. And then we can have a, a conversation mm. that you'll remember when you wake up. That's right. He and that's what they did. Yeah. My question is, what does Dio have that the baby wants? <laughs> yeah. What, what is their agreement based on? I think what happened was Dio was hanging out, and then he had the corner of the eye. He caught the baby making that really freaky face that he makes. It was like, <laughs> yeah. shit. Does Dio make the, the Joestar family baby food recipe even better than Joseph does? Mm. You know he does. <laughs> it's, no, it's knowledge passed on from Jonathan's body to Dio. Jonathan was a, about to be a dad. Like He makes it from muscle yeah. memory. Yeah. Aha. Uh-huh. Like there's a there's a non-canonical light novel that decided that weird uh, stand that Dio uses from Jonathan is called Passion, but nobody cares about that. So whatever. Yeah. My favorite thing about Joseph is that he canonically is just very good with kids. I do really like that. Yes. It is a consistent part of his character. It comes up a bunch of times and I think it just adds a lot to who he is. Yeah. I also want to bring up since like I did I either didn't know this or forgot this, but when we were going over the judgment two parter, there were a bunch of moments that happened throughout. It's like, hey, that's a really nice you know character moment for Polnareff, whatever that really wraps up his storyline and stuff. And then Grant pointed out to me that's not in the manga at all. (laughs) (laughs) Like that's big time anime original stuff. Oh yeah, I think it's pretty interesting that there are certain parts of the anime that really improve some of that character stuff like a whole Mm -hmm, lot mm -hmm. the interesting thing to me about part three is that it is very much more so than possibly any other jojo part it is a transitional series because you can tell at the beginning like araki is really figuring it out and you could tell that because the stands that show up at the very beginning of part three are just like here's a stand that punches really hard and fast Here's a stand that shoots fire, and here's a stand that just has, like, a sword. As the series goes on, Araki kind of realizes, like, oh, wait a minute. Uh, I actually want to do more interesting things with this than just have, like, glam rock fist the North Star, which is what it kind of was up to that point. Yeah. And, like, a, a happy accident that comes from that is that our, our heroes are now naturally underpowered. As things get get uh, weirder and broader and more specific uh, in turn from week to week, just having a punch guy or a sword guy, you're, you're bringing a knife to a gunfight now. Yeah, it is kind of fun, yeah, to see the, these, for the most part, really basic, easy to understand powers that you're like super familiar with and going like, how the fuck do you use something like that to fight, you know, a guy that invades your dreams and you... You can't even use the punch ghost there. Are, are you and are you really gonna punch a baby? <laughs> yeah. Are you? Are you gonna punch a baby right now? All your friends are gonna look at you so weird if you punch that God, baby. Yeah. One of my 
favorite moments in these episodes is at the very end when they're all just like, wow, that was crazy. Yeah, remember we, uh, that thing with the car? Yeah, remember that thing underground? And then Kakyoin just, yeah, remember that thing with our dreams? Everyone's just like, what? What the fuck are you talking about, Kakyoin? <laughs> yeah. Like, I almost wished that the Death 13 episodes weren't there just so that part, that line could just come completely out of fucking nowhere. Oh my god, yeah. <laughs> That'd be really funny. Yeah. It's like, oh yeah, you guys don't remember that, never mind. <laughs> Uh, one of the things I think is interesting is like along with the stand powers evolving over time, we've seen a bunch of different like stands just visually, like just character design wise. And I think something that's interesting is the judgment stand, mm -hmm. which is very robotic looking, even more than any of the others we've seen so far. That stand design several parts later on kind of becomes the norm Yeah, from what I've seen. Stands in much later parts get a lot more robotic looking. Yes. And a lot more like judgment, which is interesting to me. At some point, um, Araki kind of switches to them just being like this, mostly this vague amorphous kind of thing they, to being almost like um, like Power Rangers characters or like tokusatsu villains and stuff like that. Because mm -hmm. I also think one of the big missteps, especially in this, this section of part three, uh, is that most of the enemy stand users aren't characters. You can tell because they don't have names. They don't have names. The Sun is basically a joke. The Sun is the most filler episode in the entire series because, like, it's, it's something I always forget about. And then it turns out it's just a mirror joke. And yeah, they just, they even call out, Joseph basically addresses the audience and says, What? We already defeated the stand? We didn't even learn his name. We didn't even fight him. It turns out he kind of sucked. There's a lot of fourth wall breaking in part three and part three only. Well, yeah, you, you do have three, I think, consecutive fights that end with someone turning to the camera and doing a rim shot. Yeah. yeah. There are a lot of moments where it seems like uh, Joseph's point in the conversation is to is for Araki to just express things that he learned on his trip and Polnareff to not understand what he's talking about. So to ask him questions about it. <laughs> this is how you use a swimming regulator. And Paul Nareff's just like, but what if I have to spit or hawk a loogie? And he's like, oh, well, you just use this. <laughs> he says, oh, you can, we use hand signals to talk. And then Abdul's like, no, we don't have to do that. Why did you even? <laughs> we have stands. I'm still so upset. I'm still upset because if you spend so much time with someone that you invent your own two-person sign language. Mm -hmm. With fully developed syntax, verb tenses, and and uh, uh, vocabulary, <laughs> and then you're gonna pull that uh, uh, oh it's Avdol's dad trick on him. <laughs> yeah, bullshit, absolute bullshit. Oh, the, you you mean the the moment when um, Kakyoin and Polnareff do the uh, Metal Gear Solid Two handshake? <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. yes. I loved that. That's like one of my favorite moments in the entire series. Honestly, just that on its own, you know, informs you that. They've gotten to be pretty good friends that they have their own secret handshake. Yeah. And you don't really need anything else there. But I still desperately wanted like an anime original scene or at least something animated in the background of a different conversation of those guys developing their handshake. <laughs> <laughs> During that train ride, that's the perfect place for them to develop mm -hmm. that. They're mm -hmm. bored. Hey, let's make a cool handshake, dude. Yeah, all right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one of the best moments in this section of episodes is the beginning part of uh, High Priestess, when they are just hanging out in a submarine. Polnareff's like, hey, Kakyoin, can you get me some uh, 
he get me some tea? Can you hurry it up? And he's like, well, then make it yourself. And it's just like, I really like seeing how these characters kind of interact in that way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm, a, I'm always a fan of any of the scenes where they are just hanging out. Most of the time when they're hanging out, they're eating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. These dudes love their restaurants. Um, I like when Kakyoin just opens up the refrigerator and pulls out some Cokes. Some Coca-Colas. Uh, Coca-Colas, right, right. I really wish Joseph, just to like entertain the friends while they're in the sub and everything seems normal at the time, just goes like, hey, want to check out this old trick I used to do all the time? And then he just uses Hamon to shoot the bottle cap off. <laughs> <laughs> check out this cool party trick. <laughs> yeah, imagine Joseph like at a New Year's party or any sort of champagne-based celebration. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. He's just popping those corks with his hands. It's mm-hmm. the coolest thing. <laughs> Everybody loves him. Well, we do see a return of Hamon in um, in The Lovers, I think. He uses Hamon again, and it's like, hey, to, to defeat the yeah. Lovers. And it's like, hey, you guys forgot about that, didn't you? He, he finds a, a few ways. Like, Hamon saves the, their plane crash from being even worse yep. uh, out in the desert. Yeah, he, he zaps the uh, flesh bl- bud inside his own brain with Hamon. Yeah. Which does raise the question why he didn't just, like, do that to Kakuin or Polnareff. Mm. But well, whatever. I mean, the, yeah. <laughs> if we're going to do one of those, just like, ah, Araki forgot. No, actually, wait, I can think of a bullshit reason why this is why it is. Uh, yeah, I think yeah, it's yeah. just because if you get physically close to the buds, they just burrow into your arms and go into your brain as well. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm, I mean, mm-hmm. I guess didn't, he didn't could still it. zap it out of his body, but still. I will risk this stranger's life rather than possibly have more tentacles come at me. I hate tentacles. <laughs> yeah. The the thing about JoJo is I just accept that everybody in JoJo is like 10 times better at like very little specific things than you think they are and also have the best luck imaginable. So if you just give me like a tiny little hand-waving uh, explanation for a lot of the shit that happens. I'm just like, yeah, whatever. It's JoJo. Yeah. But yeah, if you if you really want to, you can watch those Iraqi de, de, forgot debunked videos. They'll probably tell you what that is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They'll probably say it doesn't count because uh, uh, the the Hamon use on the flesh bud was anime original to begin with. <laughs> yeah. Iraqi had nothing to do with this. Yeah. One. Yeah. Get it yeah, out of so here. So it's really David Productions' fault. <laughs> uh, David Productions didn't adequately retcon. Exactly. <laughs> And also, like, with part three onward, most of the time, if there is something where you're like, wait a second, it's a lot easier to just, like, hand wave away because the nature of stands is so much more flowing, case by case almost, compared to mm-hmm. Hamon, where it's like they were trying to develop hard rules for what that did, and it was always changing. Yeah. Can say, whereas this, it's like, yeah, every stand is just kind of a sliding scale of what it can do and not do with only a couple hard set rules, and even those can be broken in very specific uh, circumstances, so... The ultimate rule is really just, like, um, does Araki think it's a good idea or not for the story? Which, you know, I respect. (laughs) I respect. Mm -hmm. That's, like, it sometimes doesn't mesh super well. But, yeah, I I totally get it. Mm -hmm. One of the interesting things is, uh, for Shonen Flop, we relatively recently did an episode on Cool Shock BT, which is the first manga that Araki ever wrote. What's fascinating about that is that it's the story of two kids, and one of the kids is, like, really good at magic tricks. And so he defeats all his enemies using, like, sleight of hand and stuff. And it's mm-hmm. it's a really interesting bit of context to have when you're watching JoJo, because you start to realize that th- that's just... That's, like, every JoJo fight. Yeah. It's, like, little sleight of hand parlor tricks. 
uh, like exacerbated to the most minute, tiniest detail. And then every once in a while, the one guy who just punches really good comes in and just punches somebody out of yeah, the way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, yeah. Sometimes Araki just picks up an old copy of Fist of the North Star again and is like, oh, I like that. Yeah, let's do this, let's do this again. Yeah, big punch. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody's head explodes. That's cool. Yeah, totally. Ora, ora, ora. I, th- I can't remember if I brought this up in a previous episode or not, but they're like some of the weird JoJo novels that aren't written by Iraqi or whatever. But there's a couple that came up with basically their own type of stand. Like, okay, Ooh. this isn't a stand. This is a blank. I forget what they're called. But they had their own naming convention where it was instead of musicians and songs and bands and stuff like that. It was just horror movies, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's that's why th- um, Jonathan's stand is called Passion for the famous horror movie Passion of the Christ. <laughs> oh, what does that stand do? Hmm. <laughs> uh, you can't say it in, in public. Yeah, it, uh, it, <laughs> you might ruin your whole career for three yeah, years. Yeah, you might temporarily <laughs> uh, damage your career and then spend a decade complaining about how your career is ruined while it absolutely is not. While getting Oscar nominations. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Jonathan just suddenly becomes very anti-Semitic. <laughs> you know, English in the Victorian ages, I'm glad nobody asked him about it, you know? <laughs> Dio is even more fiendish than that wicked dog, the Irishman. <laughs> Jonathan, no, stop it. Jonathan. Look, there, there unfortunately is racism in JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. I mean, oh yeah, you remember uh, part one? The person who gave Dio the poison is just like the most stereotypical racist depiction of a Chinese per- of a Chinese man I've ever seen in my life, and I think his name is literally uh, yes, his name is literally Wang Chung. Yeah, because mm-hmm, yep. mm-hmm. he's here to have fun tonight and hop around. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Like, I do think this second half here is weaker than the first half, but there are pretty good bits throughout here. The the second half of the first half the rather s- than the first half of the first <laughs> half. Yeah, 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 yeah. The, the, the second quarter of Stardust Crusaders here. Like, out of all these, I think the best, like, singular fight in this is probably either The Lovers or Death 13. Those are both really yeah. good, though. I, I lean slightly towards The Lovers more the climax, the solution to the fight is a lot more satisfying than Death 13's is, I think. Mm-hmm, I mm-hmm. agree. I I mean, when you say, um, like, or Dan of Steel to me. Dan of Steel. He is only called Dan of Steel on <laughs> Dan, this show. Dan of Steel is like, so there's a lot of really funny um, localization name changes. Dan of Steel is like one of the only ones where I'm like, you know what? That's actually better. Than what they yeah. call it. way like, better. That's actually significantly <laughs> better. But like when I think about that fight, like I think about like uh, oh that guy was like such a piece of shit, and that was so cool to like see get to see him get like the shit beaten out of him by Jotaro. Like that was just a really good uh, fight for Jotaro's character. When I think about Death Thirteen, I just remember Kakuin feeding a baby his own shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like the, those two fights uh, are such a good like diptych, I guess. They're they're a good uh, companion to one another because outside of the actual fighting, what's the story about? One of them is showing the gang coming together and working as a unit, and the other is showing the crew uh, being torn apart and and losing their faith and trust in one another. Yeah, yeah. 
And th- that's why I like those two more than, you know, anything else in, in the second quarter of Stardust Crusaders. Yeah. And, and they, they go hand in hand. So I well. agree, especially because, you know, it's about Jotaro and then his boyfriend. His, his boyfriend, Dan of Steel. <laughs> He's so pretty. And his other boyfriend, Kakuin. <laughs> but um, I totally agree. Those are absolutely the standout episodes. Standout. Uh, I think part of it is that because the enemy is actually a character in those two episodes mm-hmm, versus mm-hmm. the son or the high priestess where all we know about the high priestess is that she she winds up being ugly because she got beaten up great mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah it turns out when somebody gets punched in the face a thousand times their face doesn't look that yeah. good <laughs> whoa Polnareff, what were you thinking <laughs> you're right you're right Polnareff. i don't want to see that thanks what did you expect <laughs> Tiny bombs went off in each of her teeth, you freak. (laughs) Hold on, I gotta see if she's hot now. She might have been hot yesterday. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I feel like the Dan of Steel fight, uh, when he says, we're not having a fight, I'm just trying to kill you, so you don't have to be the strongest. I feel like that is Araki trying to figure out how to successfully shift the series from being fighting to being... Uh, scheming mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah even from this part out there is so little direct blow-to-blow combat for the most part from this point on like the the show starts to sell more and more that stands are really fucking lethal and so so many <laughs> of the fights are just how do i land the single hit it takes to kill this other person like it's never like ah i gotta land a thousand blows on this dude before he's he d- dies because he's so tough it's just like this is a normal human if i punch him with a skull hard once he's dead i just can't reach him because his stand does some fucking wacky thing you know yeah. let's bung a rock I, at it it's slowly <laughs> slowly and it happens in the middle of of part three it changes from almost like a sh- like a fighting manga to essentially Yu-Gi-Oh! season zero yeah where it becomes much more about uh as- for lack of a better term, like shadow games, where it's like, here are the rules. Now let's see if we can break the rules or work around them in some way to to defeat this thing. And they're always like based on very minute details and very little things. It also just leads to a formula that I, you know, as long as it's done successfully, and it, it usually is, stamp fights are a lot more satisfying because it's not just I, I punched harder. The heroes are generally put into a corner and then they're able to turn it around right at the end. And that's always a satisfying reveal. You keep saying that, but every once in a while, <laughs> every once like, in a while. they turn it around by just punching harder. We just yeah. watched uh, uh, the high priestess. <laughs> that's what I was saying from here on out. <laughs> Okay, okay, but like, I I bet, I bet going forward, there's going to be every once in a while, just as like a counterpoint, they, they, it's just time to, to dig deep and punch that much it's, harder. It's funny, because I'm looking through the second half of Stardust Crusaders here and going like, okay, here's like the fight where Jotaro's the one to solve the problem and save the day. Does he do it through punching? And several of these, he punches zero times. <laughs> <laughs> Still uses a stand, just not to punch. So... Something mm-hmm. that I kind of missed with the lovers fight, did Jotaro just like assume, okay, it's been long enough, they've finished, they've probably dealt with the issue, so I can probably beat up Dan right now? Or is it that he sees like Hierophant Green's string? I think he's seeing it through uh, his stand's incredibly precise vision. Ah, yes. I think. <laughs> yeah. I think. Which is uh, the precise vision and speed, which Araki is probably so grateful he wrote at the beginning of the series <laughs> when he wasn't intending to make it turn into this. 
Yeah, Star Platinum can totally just grab this little fly thing because he has very good vision and speed. Precision as a power, like we've said in, in a previous recap episode, is uh, so broad you can make it do a lot of things. Oh, and he does. Even the way stands are treated, though, it just reminds me of the, the points I was bringing up earlier about embodied existence. Like, even these mystic apparitions of your fighting will are in themselves bodies. Like, Star Platinum has fingerprints and lungs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he can inhale a cloud. I love that, where he just, like, he just inhales all the air in the room, <laughs> and, like, it suffocates in Yaba. Like, that's insane. And and I think that's part of why one of you know your 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 common shonen battle tropes that I'm, I've been waiting for hasn't really happened clearly and may never. But the idea that they just bear down and and uh, through some emotional like catharsis find an extra well of fighting spirit, which mm-hmm. is you know one of the ways that stands are described when when they're first introduced. Right, you, you'd expect the like. Simone coming out of his funk and and just tearing (laughs) shit up scene. That hasn't happened in JoJo, and it may never, because maybe that's not what stands are meant to be anymore. Maybe they are something much, despite their mystic origins and presentation, maybe they are more akin to meat and bone than uh, uh, you might think looking at them. Yeah. I'm excited for you guys to get to part four, that's all I'll say. Okay, okay. Part four is really good. Yeah, it's it's like... Jojo Twin Peaks almost. Mm-hmm. I've only watched part four once. So I'm very excited to get back to that. It's really good. I fucking I fucking love Josuke. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I don't think there are any moments that happen in Jojo where you're like, ah, that's just like Super Saiyan. But yeah, I, I think there are some analogs to that that occur. But most of the time it is, ha, ah, you made me you, you made me angry, which made me focus more. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Because, I mean, look, sometimes punching just works, you know? (laughs) (laughs) The last thing I want to bring up is that in the episode when Avdol reveals that he's just been playing a prank on uh, Polnareff this whole time, specifically. (laughs) First of all, the fact that he looked up at the very last second and that just made the bullet barely graze him is the most... Araki may as well have just written out, yeah, I meant to kill him and then decided I shouldn't do that. Like, you just may, may as well just have written that specifically in a text box. When Avdol comes back, he's got a whole new, like, catchphrase and sassy attitude that comes he with He got his that. groove back, yeah. Yeah, because in, in Judgment and then in High Priestess, Avdol does, like, the little tisk-tisk finger wave thing. Yeah. That's his, his new, like, Sonic the Hedgehog tood he's got. I think after the High Priestess, he doesn't do that ever again. <laughs> It's that post-resurrection high. It does wear off eventually. (laughs) Yeah. He gets back into it. He kind of, he learned to appreciate life a little bit more. But then as he lived a little more, he kind of forgot again. He woke up one day and looked at himself in the mirror and was like, do I like the man I'm becoming? Well, (laughs) this feels really performative. (laughs) Well, after he met a certain dog, he realized, no, life sucks, actually. (laughs) Uh, Well, Jordan, thank you for coming on and joining us. Tell us more about Shonen Flop and where to find it. Shonen Flop, as I mentioned, we cover um, manga that, for whatever reason, got canceled. We just had Grant on an episode about High School Family. Yeah, not not too long ago, which is not canceled. It is not canceled. That was a recommendation episode. That's a special <laughs> one. I hope that doesn't get canceled because Gomez is beautiful. We got some uh, interesting series coming up pretty soon that I'm excited. Look forward to Godspeed, which 
Only a couple chapters in. That one, to quote Avdol, it's not looking great. Um, <laughs> it was canceled with Godspeed. Exactly. But yeah, you can find us on Twitter at Shonen Flopcast. Our website is shonenflop.com. You can find us on any of your favorite podcatchers, you know? I also have a podcast that I'm going to be uh, reviving and updating soon called Mission Ignition, which is about an insane TV show from the 90s that I feel like only I remember called Vampires, which I am fully convinced has Gary Oldman in an uncredited role. What is the... What what is the log line of vampires? What what, what is the what's the show okay, about? Okay, so this is really tough. <laughs> this is really hard to explain because it feels like a fever dream when you watch it. You can watch episodes of that and still come out thinking, I don't think that exists. The best way I could describe it is that three teens hang out with a burnt out sixties like hippie who's secretly Gary Oldman. And then a bunch of uh, Beast Wars CGI car rejects come down from the sky mm. and they suck the oil out of cars like vampires, but it's vampires, <laughs> you see. And then the kids fuse with cars in the junkyard to become e- equally horrifying CGI abominations. And then they just kind of fight. And unfortunately, it's so incoherent. It's just really hard to give an accurate definition of it. It's like, Jojo, you just got to see it. <laughs> Believe it, you know? So uh, check out Gary Oldman's Bizarre Adventure at uh, <laughs> at Mission Ignition. Yeah, and you can find that on most podcatchers. I'm trying to work out the thing with Spotify. Thanks for having me on, guys. This was this was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm very happy to learn about vampires. I'm looking at the opening for the show right now, and it kicks ass. Speaking of uh, the music, do you know who did the music? I'm sorry. I just got to the part where they introduce the character Van Heelsing. <laughs> As himself. Yep. <laughs> they couldn't say Hell Sing, so they made it H E apostrophe L L Sing. Yep, that's Gary Oldman. Van Hill Sing. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> yeah. Does that mean that he will sing like at the drop of a hat? Am am I in would, this would show? Would you like me to tell you the uh, the in universe explanation for his name? Oh please. Yeah. Oh please. So he was a roadie for um, the Stones. In the late 60s, early 70s. And Mick came mm-hmm. down with uh, laryngitis. So Keith Richards pointed to Van and said, Van, he'll sing. That is the in-universe explanation for his name. Oh, my That's God. beautiful. That's a, a cherished yeah. moment in, in any roadie's life. Oh, and the music was done by uh, John Entwistle of The Who. It was one of the last things he ever did before he died. What? So you're saying that this is JoJo canon? Yeah. Because there's no way that The Who will not be referenced at some point in this show. <laughs> yeah. I, I've got a plug. I've got another plug. I can't believe it hasn't come up on this show, but uh, uh, another one of the projects that my wife and Elena and I make, Tourist Trapped, has celebrated its its first anniversary. Uh, uh, our episode 52 special came out back on uh, Memorial Day. You, you can go find it. We, we even had it cross over into the Sex Archie and History Honeys feeds because we're so proud of it. This time we, we traveled to Medieval Times Tournament and dinner, dinner tournament, medieval times dinner tournament, <laughs> uh, without leaving our home, by, by experiencing it through their their own website and all of the wonderfully in-character ad copy it has, as well as a selection of reviews from people who both loved and hated their time at medieval times. <laughs> I can imagine that would be a contentious uh, section of a website. I like the guy who talked about how accessible it was to walk from his hotel. <laughs> 
I've only been to Medieval Times once, and I still feel very bad that the one time I was there, the falcon flew into one of the rafters and hit its head really hard. Oh, no. <laughs> it was fine. It was just a little dazed, but you could see it flying around. It went really high, high up, and you heard, like, a bam, and the whole audience was like, ooh, the falcon. Oh, I'm glad it was okay, though. He was okay, but he hit it kind of hard. Oh, poor guy. <laughs> oh, poor guy. So yeah, that that is a uh, tourist trapped episode 52 social jousting warriors. Uh if you're looking for that. Any of those people could take their experience going on a trip and turn it into a manga, just like Araki. But once again, thank thank you to Jordan and thank all of you for coming and and listening. We're, we're about to start the highly regarded uh, uh season Stardust Crusaders Battle in Egypt. It's time for uh, JoJo's to really begin uh, coming <laughs> next week when we get to meet this dang old dog. <laughs> oh, yeah, let's meet a dog. dog. Oh, Iggy. Keep that dog safe. You know what happens to dogs. Keep that dog safe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no, no spoilers. So with that, to be continued. See you, See you later, everybody.